and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back or welcome to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another incredible guest today. I'm really excited to share him with you. I'm actually a fan of his, and I use the product that he's created. So we definitely geeked out together over Superhuman, which we're going to get to in a minute. But before we get to today's guest, I want to tell you about a few other things that I'm really passionate about. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and I run an accelerator program where I coach 10 executives at a time. It's all one-on-one coaching. And I bring those executives together for an annual retreat when we're able to and a once a month Zoom call where they can connect with each other. So my next accelerator launches in July. I know it's far out, but we're just starting to fill spots for the accelerator. And we've actually had past members sign up because they are podcast listeners. So if you're someone who's always been interested in executive coaching and are looking to get further information on it, feel free to reach out to me at brian at strongskills.co. That's brian at strongskills.co. And I can tell you about the accelerator program. It's really, really a fantastic offering for those of you that are interested in taking your executive presence and your leadership skills and your mindset to another level. I also work as a mental performance coach where I work with athletes and sports teams, and I've been doing that for over a decade now and and really love to work with athletes and sports teams and help them with their mindset, with their leadership, and with their culture. So those are a few things that I'm really passionate about and that I've made a career of. The podcast has been a labor of love for me. Thanks to all of you who have continued to listen. If you enjoyed today's conversation, we'd appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. Ideally, you'll give us five stars. Uh, We really put a lot into these conversations, so hopefully you're getting a lot out of them. Lastly, I have a book called Shift Your Mind that came out in October. It's been amazing to get emails, texts, and messages from people that are getting a lot out of that book. Uh, Shift Your Mind is really about how to set your mind for preparation and how setting your mind for performance is actually different than how you want to set your mind for preparation. So if you're interested in any of these themes or are interested in setting your mind, feel free to pick up that book on Amazon. You can get the Kindle version, you can get the hard copy, or you can listen to the Audible version, the audio book. Uh, We put a lot into all of them, so hopefully you're finding it useful. Thanks to all of you who continue to support my work and everything that we are about here at the Intentional Performers Podcast. 
Now to today's guest. I mentioned earlier that I geeked out over today's guest product that he created. So Rahul Vora created a company called Superhuman. And it's not just that I love his product and I use it and I subscribe and I pay money every month to help with my email and make sure that I'm on top of my emails. It's also that as I got to know what Rahul was all about, he was so clear that he cares deeply about psychology. He cares about culture. He's intentional and thoughtful about how he leads and how he can create an organization that can thrive. So Superhuman is the fastest email experience ever made. And and when, when they say that as a tagline, it is really true. But before Superhuman, he previously founded Reportive, which is a popular Gmail plugin that was acquired by LinkedIn. And Rahul's resume is impressive. What Superhuman doing is amazing. But as I said, today's conversation is less about those technical and tactical skills and more about Rahul developed his mind, how he continues to develop his mind and make sure that he's constantly sharpening his axe to make sure that he can show up for the people that he leads. So he's extremely intentional. He's extremely thoughtful. And he's one of the most articulate people I've ever connected with. So this conversation is littered with tangible ideas for how you can be more thoughtful, how you can be more efficient, and how you can be more productive, not only with yourself, but with the people that you surround yourself with and the company that you're involved with or the organization and the ecosystem that you live and breathe in. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Rahul Vora. Rahul, thank you so much for coming on the podcast I am a superhuman geek or fan or whatever you want to call groupie. Uh, I got introduced to to the company, gosh, a few years ago. Um, Steve Schlafman, who was a friend of mine, I think he got early access to superhuman and posted something on Twitter. And at the time, I was falling through the cracks when it came to my emails. I was letting a lot of emails slip. And, and I just realized that my ability to respond to people was 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 not where it needed to be or not where I wanted it to be. So first off, I just want to thank you because ever since then, I have been way better with email and I'm sure you hear this a lot, but I'm grateful for the company you you started and, and for all of the helpful elements and tools, which we'll get into today uh, that helped me communicate better. And so thank you for that. And as I was doing research on you, the person sort of behind this amazing technology that I use, I was I became even more intrigued. And as I started to get emails from you about flow state or grit or awe, I was like, gosh, I got to connect with them. So I'm excited to chat with you today. And where I'd like to start is to actually get a sense of what you were like as a kid and what childhood childhood was like for you. And and I'd love to learn a little bit more about who you are and how you became you. So if you could start there, we can we can sort of bounce off of each other from there. Cool. Well, first of all, thank you. It never, ever gets old hearing from a happy user or a happy customer about how you as a founder may have changed their life. So that that's amazing. And I, I just appreciate you sharing that. So childhood, let's see. Well, I think one of the things that was definitely life-changing for me was that through happenstance or circumstance, I learned how to code, how to program computers at the young tender age of eight. And I think that everything that has happened in my life since, in a sense, you can trace back to that learning of that skill at that time. 
And so it's probably interesting to dig into how that happened, why that happened, and perhaps some of the doors that that opened. You said eight. <laughs> what what was happening for you at eight? When I was at eight, I was trading baseball cards. <laughs> what, why were you coding? And, and, and tell me a bit about how that got introduced to you. Well, I was also trading cards, but of course, as you can probably tell from my accent, they weren't baseball cards. I, no. I believe they were Star Trek cards and some other kind of card. How did I learn how to code? Well, both my parents are doctors, and so they would often work very late hours. And that meant that at the end of school, I frequently had to pass an idle hour or two after the school day had ended. So I hung out in my favorite place, the school library. And I read the fiction books. And once I was done with all the fiction books, I began on the nonfiction books. And pretty soon I found manuals on how to program. Although of course, in those days, I'm going to date myself, we called them microcomputers. This was the BBC microcomputer. And it was a very special time in Britain. Computing was all the rage. Acorn was a big company. It seemed at the time that Britain would be a world leader in computing. Uh, and of course, still is with things like ARM. But at the time, it was a thing that had captured complete public attention, so much so that it was even in the national curriculum for what kids would learn. So I found these books on how to program microcomputers, and these books were written specifically for children. Almost all of the examples were how to make your own video games. So I was captivated. I taught myself basic, then C, then C++. I built my own apps and games. And I don't know whether, whether you as a coach believe in this or whether folks ascribe to this anymore. But by the time I got to university, I'd spent north of 10,000 hours coding. And that gave me a significant advantage at university. Whilst many of the computer science year was focused on learning how to program, I could focus on computer science theory as well as many other disciplines, for example, marketing and psychology and entrepreneurship. Rahul, do you have siblings? Yes, one younger sibling. And was that sibling also interested in similar stuff to you or different? I would say a, a healthy degree of overlap, but as with any family where you have a bunch of type A people, obviously the, they, they went off and, and figure out their own areas of, of excellence and, and peak performance. We share a passion for video gaming. We share an interest in all things nerdy and geeky. But whereas I would spend my evenings programming my computer, he would spend his evenings teaching himself how to play the guitar and writing his own musical compositions. Whereas I had a small group of tightly knit friends, perhaps six or seven of us, he was the kind of person who was friends with everybody in high school and starred in the school production. So both very capable people, two very different types of personality. And as fate would have it, we still are very close. He actually works with me as our head of growth at Superhuman. Very cool. And both parents are doctors. It sounds like you and your brother were self-taught. You're reading, you're, you're figuring out, he's figuring out music and you're figuring out coding. Were, were your parents at all telling you to go teach yourself? I mean, be, 
becoming a doctor is a very linear path. You go to school, it's more traditional education, but it sounds like the two of you were almost interested in learning yourself. So I'm curious to unpack that a little bit with you. I think this is a really interesting topic. Somehow, and I'm not entirely sure how they did it, but my parents instilled in me and my brother, or maybe they just created the conditions, a love of learning. I know this by comparison to my other friends with Indian parents, where those parents would push their kids really hard, you know, set timetables and check in on homework and really aggressively try and get the kid to perform academically. My parents didn't do that with me beyond age 10 or 11. When I was struggling when I was younger, because I, you know, I, I, it wasn't always plain sailing for me. They would get me outside tuition. They would find me a maths coach to help me figure that out and, and so on. But by the time I hit around 11 years old, they were 90 to 99% hands-off with my education. And somehow I found within myself the desire to do well. I can remember one or two specific moments. Maybe they'll be, they'll be interesting to share. The first was when I was around 11 or 12. So the second year of high school in England, of course, we'd call it secondary school. And it was a biology class. An exam had just been taken. And I remember the results because this was a particularly old school type of teacher. He printed out two sheets of paper, totally ordered everybody into a list in terms of how they had done and stuck those sheets of paper on the wall. And I remember looking at the pieces of paper, scanning down the list, looking for my name in consternation, and then almost losing my breath when I see at the bottom of the list, it's me and my best friend. And I look over to my best friend and I say, I will never again be at the bottom of this list. Mm. And that kind of switched something on. I don't know what the switch is. I wouldn't know how to label it. But from then on, everything was different. From then on, I was always at the very top of that list to the point where even in the national examinations for biology, I ended up coming at the top of the country and I, I represented the country internationally and so on. And it can all be traced back directly to, to that switch firing. Hey, Rahul, do you remember what you felt? Because it sounds like you remember what you said, but I'm curious if you remember what you felt when you saw your name at the bottom of the list. If you've listened to my previous uh, podcast, you'll, you'll know I'm a big fan of using accurate emotion words. And I think this one is tricky because it's both a long time ago and the feeling is very nuanced. So I'm, I'm actually just going to look at my emotion wheel. Uh, for listeners who, who struggle with this, I actually use the Hunto Institute emotion wheel. It's, it's very nuanced. There's a lot of stuff on it. And the words that we typically don't use in our day-to-day, -day, which is why I find it helpful to have it to, ha uh, to hand. So I'm just looking at it now. I'm going around the list. I think there was definitely an element of regret. I think there was an element of annoyance. 
there's probably an emotion that isn't even represented here, but that, that sense that this is not me. This does not reflect who I am. And a desire to, to right that wrong. Maybe you're able to name that emotion. It's, it's interesting. I was talking to a client today and they were talking about one of their people, uh, employees, so to speak, and were saying that the person's angry. And I said, well, you know, perhaps what's underneath the anger is rage and, and perhaps the anger is turned into annoyance. And, uh, you know, from that annoyance, you have multiple possibilities. But I love how you keep that emotion wheel handy because I do agree with you. I think we often struggle to put the word on the emotion. And I'm just fascinated by how vivid this experience and this watershed moment was for you and how it shifted how you showed up from an education standpoint going forward. And I just think it's fascinating. I mean, there's quite a few of these if you're interested to get into them. Going around the circle, I think, uh, back to the emotions, definitely annoyance. Most of it is in the sadness uh, segment of the chart. Disheartened, dismayed, displeased, regretful, maybe some elements of guilt, shame. These are all aspects of sadness. And I, I definitely felt all of those. I think if, I, if that was the only feeling that I felt, then it probably wouldn't be productive. But because I also felt it with the unshakable belief that it's not me, it's not an accurate reflection of who I am, I think that's what made it powerful and potent. Oh, I love that. I, another client, I'm fortunate to get to work with brilliant people. And another one of my clients said that when he's talking to his people, he said, um, we need to have truth wrapped in hope. And for you, the truth was that you were at the bottom of the class, but there was something in you that was optimistic and hopeful and sort of dig your feet in and say, this won't happen again. And, and then, and then maybe some hope and some optimism that you could actually change it. I agree. I do think there is also a third component, which is, and maybe this is wrapped up in the notion of truth, but an external instigator. So I'm reminded of another anecdote. Now this one took place a little bit later when I was around 16 or 17. And as the story would have it, my favorite subject at that point was in fact biology, because after the previous story, it was an immediate turnaround. I was always top of class. I was always top of school. So I was rather good at the subject. Good enough that my school encouraged me to enter the Na National Biology Olympiad. So this is a nationwide competition for biology. Most people typically come across this in the context of mathematics or informatics, but it actually takes place for all subjects. And to my great surprise, I came in the top 50 nationwide and I was invited to a national event. And my school encouraged me to study hard to see if I could place in the top four which would qualify me to represent the UK internationally against 140 other companies. Uh, companies, countries, sorry. Now, now this was hard. So on top of a full school workload, I was being asked to study and essentially memorize an entire textbook of university biology in about two months. And I remember feeling incredibly stressed about this whole affair because at the same time, I was also 
studying all my other subjects and trying to make sure that I would actually get into a decent university and so on. And so I tried to find the head of science at our school. And again, I can vividly remember this. The, the picture is seared into my mind. I stopped him in the corridor and I explained my predicament. I told him how much work I had, how tired I was, and that I didn't think I could do it. He paused and I could almost see the gears turning in his mind. He had this stern look on his face and the muscles were just sort of tensing as his jaw was clenching. And then he did that quiet, understated yell that only old school British teachers can do. He said, just do the bloody work, Mr. Vora. Of course, we, we all refer to each other by our, our surnames. And I didn't have a good answer to that. So I went home and did the bloody work. And I'm glad he said that because I placed in the top four in the UK and I went on to represent the country internationally. And we did really well on the international field. And so now when I'm tired, and this, I, I actually channeled this teacher, Mr. Rigby, just last night because I had to push through. Like I really wanted to go to sleep, but I had to push through and get something done. And what popped into my head nothing other than the image of Mr. Rigmy in that science corridor saying, do the bloody work, Mr. Bora. And by the way, it's also been effective with other people. At LinkedIn, where I sold my last company to, I was working with a fantastic engineer and he really wanted to work on his public speaking skills. And so I encouraged him to sign up to speak at conferences and he did, and lo and behold, he got accepted. Now a month away from the deadline, you can probably predict where this is going. He comes to me and he says, I'm too tired I don't know if I can put this talk together. No, I didn't yell at him. I didn't say, do the bloody work, Mr. Engineer. But what I did relay was this story. Now he went home, he did the work. A week later, he came back to me and he said, thank you. I did the work. And it was one of the best talks at the conference. So there's something magical about, you know, you'd mentioned truth. You'd mentioned hope. Sometimes we just need an external poke, uh, an upset to our ec internal equilibrium that where the dominoes might fall one way, they in fact fall another way. It's, it's so good. I, I was listening to Jerry Seinfeld on Tim Ferriss's podcast and he, Tim Ferriss asked everybody, if you had a billboard and you could put anything on the billboard, what would you put? And he said, Seinfeld said, just work. And I think about the work that that's what allows us to then go play. And so a lot of people I think are afraid to do the work um, because if they do the work and then they fail, then, then what are they and, and where do they go from there? Um, but it's through the work that you earn the right to, to be able to play and, and to be able to compete. Um, I want to go back to uh, the, being the son of, of doctors. And um, was there ever a time where your parents looked at you and said, Rahul, you are now top of your class. You're doing amazing. You're just in this biology competition. Why not become a doctor? Did they ever poke at that or, or, or challenge you to go into a more traditional industry? When I was younger, yes, from the ages of about five to 10, especially my mother, she was very keen that I go into medicine. I think she could tell that I had some kind of natural aptitude and inherent interest in the area. My dad, on the other hand, I don't recall once him saying that. 
And I think to understand why, and I've had this conversation with him, so I have some understanding, we have to dig into what India was like when they were up and comers. When they were up and comers, personal choice about what you do was much more limited. In his family, I think it was expected that you either become a doctor or an engineer. But he told me not too long ago, a few years ago, that actually what he really wanted to do was to be an entrepreneur, the thing that I, in fact, am now doing. And so when I told him at the age of 11 or 12, I think it was, dad, I think I know what I want to do. I think I want to be an entrepreneur. I think I want to be a founder. I think I want to grow and scale companies. And by the way, I love software. I think programming is really cool. I think it's going to be something to do with that. He was excited for me. He was like, awesome. Yeah, like, go, go do that. Be, be a founder. There is this big difference in risk tolerance between my father and my mother. So whilst my father was encouraging these highly risky unknown bets, my mother wanted me to apply to McKinsey or to apply to Goldman Sachs and, you know, the traditional investment banking or strategy consulting route. But having, you know, when I was growing up, I, I spoke to people who were doing that and every single one of them dissuaded me from it. Every single investment banking management consultant I spoke to said, I can tell you're an entrepreneur. You wouldn't be happy here. You should go found a company. What do you think is underneath that? Why, why do you think you're better off as an entrepreneur than going to work for one of those companies? Because it was pretty clear that what I wanted to do was start a company. And I learned this lesson the hard way with my PhD. I started a PhD because I thought it would be a good way to start a company. And it turns out that the best way to start a company is just, in fact, to go and start a company. And I distilled from that PhD experience a lifelong lesson. And I, I guess that you would see this often with clients. Sometimes we're scared of the thing that we actually want to do, or we have a mental block that prevents us from doing it. And so we do what I call the stepping stone fallacy. I'll just take a step towards the thing. But the problem with the step towards the thing is it can often take many years, completely sidetrack you, maybe even depress you, maybe even make you less qualified to do the thing that you want to do. And the, the fallacy is, it was probably a false stepping stone. Now, the PhD example is obvious to anyone who even sits down and thinks about it for a few minutes. But as a 17, 18-year-old coming through a university, it was really non-obvious to me. I genuinely thought that starting a PhD would be a good way to start a company. But it was a false stepping stone. And in retrospect, I should have just left university and started a company. And having started a company now, and I know you've been involved with many startups, some that have been successful and others that have quote unquote failed, whatever that, whatever that means to, to each person. What do you wish you had known then that you know now? When I started those companies or, or what period of time are we discussing? Doesn't really matter. I, I think with your experience now, I'm curious if, if you wish you had known some of the stuff you know today back when maybe you started your first company or you're going through that PhD program or, or what, what, whatever it might be? 
I think the biggest thing, and this is not a, I, I guess I was going to say this is not a lesson, but, but actually I, it's very easy to morph into the lesson. The concrete instance of the lesson for me is I should have moved to California, San Francisco as soon as I graduated. I knew I wanted to start a technology company. The rational thing to do when you know what you want to do is to move to the part of the world that is the best at doing that thing. Assuming you want to play on the world stage, assuming you want to be best in world. Obviously there might be reasons to stay in your home country or in your hometown. But when you're young, you generally have the least attachments that you'll ever have. You're the most mobile that you'll ever be. You can take the most risk at any point in your life. I think all things considered, it is rational when you graduate, assuming you know what you want to do, which not everybody does, but assuming you do to go to the part of the world that is best for that. There is so much that is amazing about the University of Cambridge in the UK, but building consumer internet companies is not one of them. We have, like, I literally can't even think of one. We're, we're really good at chip technology, at gene technology, at so, like actual science. But when it comes to building companies like Reportive, my last company, or Superhuman, my current company, tends not to happen. All of that stuff happens here. Now, if you knew you wanted to be a financier, then obviously you should go to Wall Street. If you knew that you wanted to be uh, I mean, you, th th this really works for, for any field. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is a lesson that is now obvious and, and one that I would hope to impart to my kids, if I ever have kids, is don't be afraid. If you want to perform at a world-class level, go to the part, go to the place in the world where that actually takes place. And Raul, you, you, you study engineering, you study coding informally, formally. Uh, a lot of these hard technology skills um, that are very much in demand at pretty much every company. Where did your love for, for psychology come in? When did it come in? Because it's clear in getting emails from you as a superhuman subscriber. I mean, you're talking about flow state. You're talking about awe. You're talking about grit. You, you talk about meditation. I mean, you've, you're clearly dedicated and interested in psychology when did that start to come up for you? And why does it continue to be something that you spend a lot of time on? It first came up in the field of game design. So the reason I learned how to code when I was eight was so that I could make my own games. And most of the programming that I did from age eight up until university was all making my own games. And so I was, of course, naturally interested in, well, what makes a good game? And as you know, that's a very complicated topic. There's all kinds of things that go into it, not just psychology, also mathematics, narrative, storytelling, interaction design, but also psychology. And so there was a natural interest from there. I then worked briefly professionally as a game designer, really got stuck into it there. And then of course, as a product oriented founder, that builds what I call consumerish products, meaning people buy them for their business, but they're also using them individually. Like no one is forcing superhuman upon you. You choose to use it because it makes you better at running your business. The psychology of flow and fun and delight and game design is of critical importance. Superhuman would not be a successful company 
unless it was delightful to use as well as effective to use. So that was sort of the first wave. The second wave is a lot more recent. The second wave has come about from me both trying to unlock my own best performance, hence meditation, hence executive coaching, and the form of meditation that I do, transcendental meditation, and the way that it's taught is actually taught not with spirituality in mind, but with peak performance in mind. So it's come out of unlocking peak performance as well as being the best manager and the best leader that I can possibly be and helping other people do their best work, therefore helping the company do their best work. So early on, it was how do you build the best experiences? And more recently, it's how do you unlock top performance both in yourself and others? It sounds like uh, multifaceted. And I know as the consumer that you're caring about these things from my experience, it sounds like that was the focal point maybe early on. And then there's this shift to also focusing on yourself and showing up as the best version of you and creating a culture and ecosystem that can also thrive. And so uh, that, that is, it makes sense to me because a lot of the people that I coach were always focused on them and how they can be there for, for those that they serve as well. And so that dynamic is, is very prevalent. When it comes to executive coaching, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about your experience there. What's it been like? What's been beneficial? Um, walk us through that, that process. I've worked with a number of executive coaches over the years. I would say about four or five at this point. The thing and everyone obviously has different styles. Some are highly analytical and will use a lot of psychological profiling to understand you. Some are very uh, interview and evidence-based and will use a lot of 360 degree work. And obviously you have then the spectrum of, not, not even a spectrum, sort of the, the landscape of all of the different psychological techniques that you can use to help people through their challenges. The, the upside for me is is really about working through tough problems and challenges. I often know the solutions, but sometimes I don't see them because I feel afraid or my hands feel tied or I have some other kind of mental block. It's a variant of just do the bloody work, but a different style. The thing that it shares in common is it's an external impact so that the dominoes fall one way rather than another. The other thing that a coach will do is if I'm not in a growth mindset, and I know we all aspire to be all the time, but if I'm not, and it's, it's easy as a founder to you know, fall into depression or into uh, lack of hope, they can help jog me out of that. And a really good coach I've found can sort of tune into my wavelength and easily, almost seamlessly without me noticing, just get me right back into a growth mindset. And then they start asking me to share my thinking, or let's, can you explain why you said that? Or, well, if you only had a day to solve it, how would you solve it? You know, questions like that, that it is designed to get you solutioning. And, and by answering those questions, and essentially by having a muse to talk through the problems with, the solutions usually become obvious. I actually knew them all along. I just needed a coach to help me unlock them. And when I think about you building an organization that's 
bigger than just you. Uh, you brought on co-founders to run operations and, and a CTO. Uh, I think you've brought on a head of people. How do you think about partnership and bringing on other people to help you? And um, how, do you, how do you think about bringing them on? Well, there's a lot to get right. Everything from the ordering of who do you bring on through to the experience level Ideally, you want as experienced as you can get, but not so high level that the person doesn't want to roll up their sleeves and build their organization from scratch. You're also, and this is super important, going to be looking for overlap on your core values. And Superhuman has three core values, which also happen to be my three core personal values. They are create delight, be intentional, as you would appreciate the Intentional Performance Podcast. That is literally a core company value for us. And the last one is remarkable quality. We don't bring people on board at the leadership level or indeed any level within the company unless we feel a great degree of resonance across great delight, be intentional, and remarkable quality. As much as I want to just go into the intentional piece, uh, which I'm sure we will, I I'm curious because you said these are actually my my personal values as well. Is there any thought about them being different than your personal values uh, as you continue to evolve as the company grows? Is there any thought to expanding them beyond maybe the three that resonate most with you? There has been, and we've gone through pretty substantial values discovery exercises. There's a really great value discovery exercise that I highly recommend any CEO run with their executive team in the book, The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. I won't go into the process here, but suffice it to say, if, if you're wondering, like if you're looking at your values and going, well, is this really us? They kind of feel like most other companies, then go ahead and run this process. Now we ran the process and we actually came up with these three core values. And core in this context actually has a technical meaning. It means that we can credibly say that we uphold these values better than, more passionately and vigorously than 99% of all other companies. And there's a flip side to that, which is we would uphold these values even if it would be detrimental, let's say to the growth of superhuman. That's how much we care about them. They're literally who we are and why we're here. Now, the amazing thing is when we ran through the values exercise on the executive team, we all felt that these were the three most important things. And actually that's not too surprising. Initially, when we were doing our hiring, we were essentially doing values filtering, but we were doing it subconsciously, both by attracting people who are kind of like us and also preferring people who are kind of like us. What we've done now is we have made it a explicit part of our hiring process. And this is really important if you're scaling a company. I'm not involved in most of the interviews anymore. Neither are our executive team. We're scaling and so managers have to, to learn how to scale the company with us. You need a way of transferring the values process into every single person in the company so that the values remain intact as the organization scales. I want to go to intention. What do you do every day 
to be intentional. You mentioned transcendental meditation. Uh, what else do you do to be intentional with your time to make sure that you're showing up the way that you need to for the company and for yourself? One that I think you might find interesting is this notion of the switch log. Now, this daily act was spurred by the question, do you know how you spend your time? Most people probably think they do, but I would question, do they really know? Yes, we have our calendars, but calendars are poor reflections of reality because urgent tasks require our attention and important work may not even be on our calendars. So as the saying goes, you change what you measure. And for me, the question became, how do we measure time? And so I came up with this technique. It's surprisingly simple. It's super effective. Number one, log when you start a task. Number two, log when you switch a task. And number three, log when you take a break. And then, and here's the magic part, do whatever you want. I really do mean that, right? Turn up for your meetings, of course, but otherwise follow your intuition and do what seems important. Now, for, we, for me, mechanically, the way that this happens is I send these little messages to a Slack channel. I simply write TS, which stands for task switch, followed by whatever I'm switching to, and you might think, well, what happens if you log one task and you instead do another? That's fine. I, you just go back and edit the message. You might wonder, well, what happens if you forget to log a task? That's also fine. I just log it when I notice. Uh, for example, I would just say, well, at 5.40, I started doing meditation or for the last 10 minutes, I've been working on our values. And sometimes I start a task, I switch to another for five minutes, and then I switch back. And I'm, I'm guessing lots of people listening to this are thinking, oh yeah, I, I do that all the time. It's easy to feel anxious or guilty about those things. With the switch log, all of that goes away. I simply log the switches and whatever happens, I do not worry about updating my calendar. And then on a weekly schedule, I analyze the data. I compare my ideal week to where my time is actually going and I can start to use rules of thumb. So for example, as a CEO of a Series B venture-backed company, I know that I should spend roughly a third of my time on recruiting. However, earlier this year, I did have some weeks where I spent only 4% of my time on recruiting and a whopping 22% on PR. So I clearly should have spent more time recruiting and clearly hiring for the PR. So in summary, I think your calendar records what you thought would happen, whereas your switch log records what actually happened. And for me, this has been a daily act with the corresponding weekly act of analysis that has been completely life-changing. Oh, I love it. The weekly analysis is something I've been thinking a lot about because a lot of people will say, win the day or carpe diem, seize the day. And I've always struggled with that because each day is going to be a little bit different. And I just actually tweeted about this, which is what if we evaluated our weeks, 168 hours instead of 24 hours? Because over the course of a week, I like to eat a great meal sometimes. Like I don't need to eat a salad every time. I can drink a bottle of wine you know, over the course of a week. And I think we have gotten so interested in productivity that people are fearing, feeling overwhelmed if they didn't get eight hours of sleep every night, if they didn't eat a certain way, if they didn't meditate twice a day, if you're doing TM or whatever it might be. And I'm not suggesting that those aren't good structures and fundamentals for people, but the reality is we live in a constantly moving environment. And 
I think it's way more powerful to think about it from a weekly standpoint and then reflect back. Whereas a day, each day brings all kinds of nuance and challenges and, and information. And I feel, at least for me, I have felt overwhelmed with trying to make the day as great as possible when the reality is I've got two small kids and, and, and shit happens and things come up and I have to adjust and be nimble and flexible. Um, so yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I think it's so interesting. On the one hand, I agree. On the other hand, I can't help but disagree because there are certain habits, if you are being goal-oriented, where it really does matter what day or what days you're doing them on. Let's take, for example, meditation. And we can also talk about drinking because they're, they're sort of two opposite examples. With meditation, all of the science suggests, especially around TM, that there's a certain amount of unlock, especially when it comes to measuring impact on creativity, uh, problem-solving ability, your ability to integrate context from the surrounding world. There's a lot of science to show that the, the real unlocks are where you can literally maintain it twice a day for six months, which I know sounds so hard. But if you're trying to average over a week, well, you can't really say, well, I'll do it four times on Monday and then not on Sunday. That, that doesn't achieve the intended benefit. Drinking is actually kind of the opposite. Let's say you're bodybuilding and you're, or you're trying to do a body recomposition and you want to drink. You would probably know a lot more about this than I do, but as an amateur bodybuilder myself, if you do want to drink, my understanding, uh, let's, let's say that you're, you're trying to avoid the, um, the gain of fat. The best way to do that is actually to have maybe one day in a week where you minimize the consumption of dietary fats. On that day, up to some amount of reasonableness, it actually doesn't matter whether you had one glass of, of vodka or whiskey or two, or maybe even three, because your dietary fat is minimal, you're actually not gonna gain any fats. Now you are gonna eat into your recovery time, but it's, it's just that one time, so it's okay. Whereas if, as, uh, if that same person is is doing is drinking every day or every other day, it then actually does start to um, impact your let, let's say your your body fat reduction percentage goal because you have few days where um, it's actually possible to do that. So I want to agree, but I find that for many of the goals that we might have, whether it's sports or working the daily showing up in the right fashion actually seems to matter a tremendous amount. Yeah, I'm curious think, what you think about that. Yeah, I think it's keystone habits. And what are those keystone habits that you're going to do every day? And then having the agility and flexibility and, and maybe even space to, to go play or explore or create or whatever those things are. And then listening to you, you've done that. You, you've created sort of those keystone habits and then you also create space to go be. And um, yeah, I think, I think it's also a matter of, are you trying to gain wisdom? Are you trying to maximize? And I think it depends on, on the goal for each of us as far as what we're trying to do. You said amateur bodybuilder, which I am not. And, and so when did you get into focusing on, on bodybuilding and um, th 
thinking about how to show up? Are you someone that wants to compete? Like, how are you thinking about bodybuilding? I have no aspirations of competition. It really was the form of exercise and remains the form of exercise that I'm most interested in doing. Uh, so I do, this is my other weekly ritual. I, I exercise by weightlifting three times a week. And I think it has a number of benefits. For example, it gives me something to work on and goals to achieve outside of the company. Number two, it provides the opportunity for regular wins. When running a company, the relationship between effort and success isn't always clear. When exercising, that relationship is much more straightforward. Now, obviously, the results still aren't also linear, and there's constant tweaking and problem solving that you have to do, whether it's form or sleep or diet or recovery um, or alcohol or you know whatever it is that you need to work on. But generally speaking, if you try harder in the gym, you'll do better. Not true for most people's work. Thirdly, it provides me with the motivation to be more healthy. If I'm not fueling my body appropriately, the three to six hours I spend in the gym literally feels like a waste of time. But if I'm eating clean, I can immediately feel the impact in the gym. And it has this sort of self-reinforcing effect across the rest of my life, making the rest of my life better and healthier. And then lastly, it holistically improves almost every aspect of my life, most notably sleep. If I lift heavy, I know I'm going to sleep like a baby. I love it. Um, I, I, I want to try to take the rest of our time to share with the listeners my experience with Superhuman and try to go uh, under the hood a little bit and be behind the curtain to sort of get some questions answered that I'm curious about just using, using the product. And th I think it'll also answer how you think about the, the company and the culture and, and the intention behind some of the decisions that you made. The first being that when I first wanted to use your product, I, I wasn't able to. There was a wait list and I had to have a referral. Uh, I'd love to learn a little more about why that was, why you all had it as a referral only uh, product and also the idea behind having a wait list. Yeah, great question. I no longer believe in the traditional launch. And I've seen a lot of companies, especially in our space, which I would broadly define as productivity, get this wrong. So let's say you're building a new email client or a new task manager or a new calendar app. doesn't really matter what it is. The surface area for these products is absolutely massive, bigger than almost any domain you could think of. And what that means is you also get a massive surface area for bugs, as well as massive variability in how users want to use the product. Now, most companies would launch their app, and because the demand for these products is so high, they would quickly get tens of thousands of users. But guess what? These users will find thousands of bugs, and the company would quickly get overwhelmed. They would not be able to fix the issues fast enough. And so these users will become disappointed, they'll churn out, and they'll tell everybody about their experience. That is the very definition of a net detractor. In my experience, it's actually significantly better to do what we do, which is onboard customers at a measured pace every single week. That way you have the bind width to fix any issues that they find 
and you can focus on making them exceptionally happy. Now then the question is, which users do you onboard? And for that, we have the waitlist and the referral mechanics. Many people think that the waitlist is some kind of uh, perhaps trite method to drive scarcity or to increase FOMO, but, but actually nothing could be further from the truth. It is because we are obsessed with providing the best possible user experience. Now we don't have an Android app today, we're working on one, but if you come to us and you say, hey, I wanna use Superhuman, but I also have an Android, I will politely say, that's amazing, thank you, I'm flattered, but why don't we wait until we have an Android app? This is after all an email program. If you can't do it on your mobile, it's probably not going to work out for you. And for that reason, the waitlist exists. Now beyond that, you do also want the ability to identify the highest intent users. These are the people who will be the most forgiving early on. They'll give you the most feedback. They'll be your best evangelists. And that's why we made it such that if you get a referral, then you get bounced to the top of the waitlist. If you are intentful enough that you actually seek out a referral or you're around other people who love superhuman, we know that you are way more likely to do well with the product. You're the kind of person that we wanna be working with. And it just becomes an ordering problem. Now there are lots of ways you can solve the ordering problem, but I would argue by intent and motivation is one of the best possible ways. And then once the people um, join and sign up, then I think what happens next is also fascinating is you really onboard your clients, which you know I pay for all kinds of different technology, software, I can't think, maybe, maybe I'm missing it, but I can't think of a, a subscription that I have where they took 30 minutes to onboard me and show me how to use the product. Uh, so walk us through why you do that and how, how you think about that. It evolved out of our early customer discovery activities. Early on, I would personally onboard everybody. I did the first several hundred onboardings myself. And they were very different back then. They were about two hours long. They were in person. I would turn up to your office. I'd always have a gift of some kind to thank you for your time. I'd show you Superhuman. I'd do a demo. I'd then even do a pricing sensitivity analysis. I'd start to ask certain questions. I would then onboard you onto Superhuman. But before that, I would ask you how you're doing your email. I would spend a good 20, 30 minutes just watching you do your email today on your current tool. And when I onboard you, I'd show you how to do that twice as fast inside of Superhuman. Now, after doing that, we saw something magical. These users, their engagement, their retention, their product market fit score, their net promoter score, their virality, everything was through the roof. And I began to wonder, well, is this just me? Maybe it's because it was so long and it was the founder doing it. Or maybe there's something magical to actually sitting down with somebody and coaching them through the transition to a new email software. And so we did a bunch of experimentation. We started changing variables one by one. The first variable we changed was I stopped doing them. Next variable we changed is we changed the length. The next variable we changed was different other people started to do them. Then we started to hire a team of people to specifically do onboardings as their main job. And today we're at the point where we have 15 people full-time who do onboardings. They're half an hour video calls. 
one-to-one -one consultations with these amazing gurus in productivity. Not only do they know email inside out, they know productivity inside out. And during that call, they go through everything I just described. They look at how you're doing email today. They show you how to do your email in superhuman. If you're far away from Inbox Zero, they'll help you wipe the slate clean so that you're within a stone's throw. They'll teach you all the keyboard shortcuts and all of the ways of using the software so that you end up getting through your email twice as fast and so that you can actually maintain Inbox Zero. And because we're so obsessed about making sure the experience is as perfect as possible, we invest in that process. How many employees do you all have now? We're about 60 people today. And so as you continue to grow, how do you figure out, you mentioned that you're not as involved with the hiring anymore. You brought on a head of, head of people for interviewing and to make sure that they align with the values. How do you continue to uh, lead? Um, do you run one-on-one -on -one meetings? What are your team meetings look like? I know a lot of people have death by meetings. So I'm curious to learn about how you're productive while still um, giving the attention to your people as you continue to grow? This is a great question. We implemented two changes over the course of the last year to both create significantly more efficient meeting schedules, as well as make our decision-making process much more efficient. So on the meeting side, the big trick is to create a staggered calendar for your organization. Most people run very inefficient calendars. Their one-on-ones will be randomly dispersed throughout the week. Team meetings happen whenever anybody happens to be free. And there is relatively little time to focus and do deep work. Here's how you fix it. If you run a team, do your team meeting on Wednesdays and stack all of your one-on-ones on Tuesday. If your reports run teams, ask them to do all their team meetings on Tuesdays and stack all their one-on-ones on Mondays. And if you have a deep organization, if they have reports that also run teams, you can stagger this whole thing by a day. Now, the staggering has a number of benefits. Number one, information moves through the company very quickly and efficiently. Problems are discussed one-on-one -on, -one on Monday in specific departments on Tuesday, and if necessary, can be resolved by leadership on Wednesday. If you do the math, it takes at most two days for information to travel that way. Number two, problems are usually solved along the way. For example, in your Wednesday team meeting, you might hear, well, this problem came up on Monday, we discussed it as a team on Tuesday, and here's the solution we'd like to go with. And hopefully 90% of the time you'll be like, yep, that sounds good. And number three, it leaves Monday, much of Wednesday, and all of Thursday and Friday free to do deep work, the stuff that only you can do and which requires your full concentration. So that's how I would recommend you set up your calendar system for the company or for the organization. Once you've done that, the next step is to really dig into the decision-making process. Most teams are in very inefficient meetings uh, and we can get into this if you're interested, but I completely revamped the way that we make decisions at Superhuman. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Sure. So this is, this is the second thing to fix once you've got the calendar stuff fixed. And we use a decision-making process outlined in The Great CEO Within by Matt Mockery. It's a really fantastic book. 
it has three ingredients that make it so effective. Number one, if somebody wants to bring up something in the team meeting, they must write it down beforehand and share it with the team by 6 p.m. on the day before. Why? This is to avoid talking about things that were not written down because we can read much faster than we can speak. As your team grows, and I'm talking at this point just about your leadership team, the number of pairwise connections obviously grows exponentially. That means the likelihood of communication style mismatch or misunderstandings also grows exponentially. The way that you avoid that is by simply avoiding talking about stuff that wasn't written down beforehand the day before. That way you can focus on actually talking about the problem rather than talking about the communication. Number two, if somebody wants to speak about something in the team meeting, they must have read the thing and commented on the documents beforehand. This is a burden of proof, so to speak, that you are up to speed and actually qualified to engage in whatever the conversation is. You shouldn't otherwise needlessly waste the time of those people who did get up to speed by essentially doing information gathering in the meeting. And number three, if something is discussed in the team meeting, it is discussed for at most five minutes. And if consensus is not reached within five minutes, then the conversation immediately stops and a decision maker is identified. And we use the Jeff Bezos rule of thumb to identify the decision maker. For reversible decisions, it should be anybody other than the CEO. For non-reversible decisions, then the decision maker should be the CEO. And finally, we use a decision-making framework. We happen to use Bain & Company's rapid framework to assign any other roles in the decision-maker process. I observed that before this, it was sometimes unclear who the decision-maker was, who was recommending, who had to agree, who was performing, who was inputting. And using this framework, it now becomes abundantly clear. After the team meeting, the decision-maker gathers any required information and makes that decision before the next team meeting. They're not allowed to kick the can down the road. They actually have to make the decision a week from now or before a week from now. Now, since everybody is always up to speed and each item takes at most five minutes, in one hour, you can get through as many as 10 items with plenty of room for fun and banter. You mentioned Bezos and there's been a lot of articles written about him using 10 a.m. as a time to really make those critical decisions. And we were talking about daily habits compared to weekly and how you think about it. And we've done a lot of talking around intention. So I'd love to just walk through a little bit um, how you think about timing uh, during your day as it relates to maybe decision-making or productivity. And then anything else that you intentionally do, we've talked about strength training, we've talked about meditation. Is there anything else you intentionally do throughout your day? So the first part is on decision-making and timing. And the second one is about anything else you intentionally do to make sure you're the best version of you. That's a really interesting question. I don't know that I have been as intentional as I could be around the timing of decision-making. Most of my decision-making, the big stuff happens I would say almost constantly. So if something is big, it's probably on my mind. There's usually a thread working on it at all times, even if I'm doing something else. The rote decisions, they tend to take place in the evenings. So around 6 or 7 p.m., once the 
the rapids, as we call them, have been written down and shared, I'll read them and then I'll provide my opinion. Your other question was around other daily rituals. This is a good question. This one may sound trite, but I find it's quite beneficial. I always wind the day down. This takes place almost every single day by watching some comedy. Now it's not necessarily a lot and the form changes. Sometimes it's a sitcom, sometimes it's stand-up, sometimes it's a panel show, but the goal is to laugh. No, I mean like to really laugh, like belly laugh before I fall asleep. I think that's important because the job is hard and it's really grueling. And sometimes you're really tired and you know, you've, you've pulled the just do the bloody work, Mr. Bora trick, and then you're even more tired. Sometimes stuff is going wrong and you don't know how to fix it. And simply staying awake isn't going to help you figure out how to fix it because it will require days, maybe weeks of work. But ending the day with joy, with delight, with laughter, with happiness is priceless. And so, that, yeah, that's what I do. That's my other ritual. That's awesome. Empathy um, is something that you've also talked a lot about. And here we are sitting here in the middle of a pandemic. You've got 60 people uh, that work alongside you. Uh, you're, you're based in San Francisco. I would imagine there's a lot of remote work. I don't know how much remote work you all had before the pandemic, but how do you think about empathy as a leader and how do you value it and the importance of it? I hugely value it. This is a topic that I'm extremely passionate about and an area that I, I do put a good amount of time into. I have this in spades for customers. I'm almost cripplingly empathetic for our customers to the point where one coach that I worked with, this was actually a therapist, not a coach, one therapist I worked with observed, it's not even empathy, it's sympathy. If a customer is feeling upset, there is nothing that I can do but feel upset along with them. And in many ways, I think that's been our secret weapon for building great products. The sympathy also goes the other way. I'm able to predict ahead of time what will make for delightful and remarkable experiences. Now, as a leader, it's a little bit different because unless you are a natural born um, you know, manager of people or, or that's just been something you've been studying for a long time or, or that is inherently your spike, it's probably something you're going to have to work on. So this is something I do work on inside of Superhuman. It's up-leveling the empathy as a leader and as a CEO to be as good as it is as a game designer or as a product designer. And there are all kinds of ways that you can work on this, but it's something that we, we as, that I as a leader and we as a leadership team think about deeply. An inspiration, you, you mentioned books, uh, you've mentioned therapist, executive coach, you've mentioned comedy. Where, where else do you go for, in, for inspiration to, to make sure that you're still moving in the right direction so that you're still motivated and inspired? 
It depends what kind of inspiration we're talking about. If it's companies that do things great, there are some specific companies that I really look up to, to name two, Tesla and Nintendo. Tesla for their incredible ability to completely rethink an entire industry, everything from the core engineering through how the company is financed to the ultimate end user experience. They are an excellent example of first principles thinking. And Nintendo for their incredible ability to repeatedly win by playing their own game. While Sony and Microsoft compete on increasingly powerful and expensive hardware with games that routinely cost more to make than multiple movies, Nintendo are able to compete despite relatively low powered hardware through the uniqueness of their games. And they've done this multiple times most recently with the Switch and then before that the Wii. One can't help but draw parallels to, well, Gmail and Outlook, super expensive. Uh, they cost billions of dollars to produce. Yet we are able to win in our niche by playing our own game. And Nintendo in that sense is, is very inspirational for me. Awesome. Well, I want to end by saying that you inspire me. And uh, what's been cool about the podcast is I get to talk to people that inspire me. And, you know, I sent you a note after you send me all kinds of emails. So if you subscribe, and I guess you're a member of, of the superhuman community, you will get emails from Rahul. And a lot of times they will be about flow state and grit and awe and all the things that I love to read about. And um, the reason you're inspiring is not just because you helped me, as I mentioned in the beginning, um, but that you also care deeply about the human experience. And I feel connected to you even without knowing you. And um, whatever I continue to do in this life will involve a, a human component. And so uh, I think, I don't know exactly why it's called superhuman. You can enlighten us, but um, you are inspiring to me. And um, I look forward to the day where we might be able to meet in person and not under a pandemic. Um, but I'm grateful that you gave us some time today to share some of your insights and, and some of your wisdom and knowledge. And one last thing um, from my perspective is with Superhuman, you also get the opportunity to get read receipts. And to be transparent, uh, this conversation, Rahul was running a few minutes late. So I sent them a note and said, hey, just want to make sure you're good. Uh, let me know if you have any issues with Zoom. And I was able to see that Rahul read it. And uh, when I saw that he read it, I was like, okay, I'm going to just hang out and wait for him. And for me, that's been massive because the last thing I want to be is annoying to people. And so oftentimes if I can see that they read it, I'll know, okay, they, they've read it and maybe they're pondering or they're thinking on it or they'll get back to me when they do. And so that's another feature in superhuman that for me has been worth its weight in gold. Um, so I want to thank you for being inspiring. I want to thank you for creating a kick-ass product that is making me more productive and better at what I do. And I'd love to give you a megaphone to just shout out anything that you think is worth shouting out. Obviously, if people want to use superhuman, I can refer you. So you can always reach out to me and, and I can refer you over. But um, Rahul, where can people find out what you're up to uh, via social media, or if they want to learn more about Superhuman, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. And it's flattering to say the least that, that you found this inspirational. I would say the opposite is also true. 
for folks interested in superhuman and you might be wondering should you be interested if look if you're the kind of person for whom email is work work is email it takes hours a day many hours a week superhuman will save you hours per week if you have aspirations of maintaining inbox zero and being more responsive and a better manager or a better leader or better at your job then superhuman may well be for you if it is go to superhuman.com and sign up what I can share for the whole community listening to this podcast is if you mention intentional performers in the how did you hear about superhuman field, we will jump you right to the front of the waitlist. I will personally make sure of that. Uh, so that's just a thing for the community there. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm very easy to get in touch with. My email address is rahul at superhuman.com, of course. Uh, I also am active on Twitter. My DMs are open if you prefer to get in touch with me that way as well. And I look forward to hearing from folks. Awesome. And Rahul is on Twitter at Rahul Vora. So it's his name. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. And you can find all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Uh, Rahul, thank you so much for all that you're doing and, and hopefully we'll chat soon. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You're also, and this is super important, going to be looking for overlap on your core values. And Superhuman has three core values, which also happen to be my three core personal values. They are create delight, be intentional, as you would appreciate the Intentional Performance Podcast. That is literally a core company value for us. And the last one is remarkable quality. We don't bring people on board at the leadership level or indeed any level within the company unless we feel a great degree of resonance across great delight, be intentional, and remarkable quality.